Welcome to the Upper Street Podcast. This week I'm going to offer some thoughts on the relationship between poetry and song and look at expressions like helter-skelter and topsy-turvy. These were literary and cultural and language issues that came out of a class this week. In that class we discussed the relationship between poetry and song. This by and large, is a long and loving relationship. The idea of reading a poem silently to oneself is a relatively new phenomenon and only became possible for non-ecclesiastical readers after the invention of the printing press and the production of books. Songs impose certain practical restrictions poems can ignore. Notice the extensive use of gonna instead of going to in contemporary song lyrics. Two syllables with a stressed consonant become much easier to sing than the three-syllable version with the tricky G2 consonants. And, of course, the extensive use of a non-standard don't instead of doesn't in these kind of songs. Um, He don't know what it means, declares Kurt Cobain, echoing a long non-standard lyrical grammar tradition. Other grammar twists are not uncommon. Consider Dylan's great song, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, where he created node as the past tense of new, so that it rhymes with road. Vowels have special importance for song, as some sound better than others and are simply more singable. This, in turn, makes songs more memorable, a key characteristic in societies and communities where the oral tradition dominated, as memory was the only way the stories, identities, and even practical information songs contained could be passed from one generation to another. I'm no authority on pop song, pop song lyrics, and I'm sure there are people who have written books and done their doctoral studies on such topics. But it's always intrigued me how the vocabulary used in songs, contemporary songs particularly, is often very simple. And I wonder whether this is due in part to the evolution of songs as practical carriers of knowledge. It's certainly striking to find Amy Mann using a word like caveat or providence. And how about this line from Foster the People's song Nevermind? In this postmodernist world where absolutes are seen as relics, I think even Ray Davis, arguably the founder of the non-rock-and-roll word school of song lyrics, would like that one. Davis, of the Kinks, was writing lyrics such as From the dew-soaked hedge creeps a crawly caterpillar. At about the same time, the Beatles relied on Yeah, Yeah, Yeah to shape their songs. Perhaps the clearest link between song and poetry is rhyme the absence of which is, of course, a defining characteristic of of poetry post-1900. As the text moves further away from oral considerations, its links to the past loosen. I remember reading once that Marion Moore, the modernist poet, even purposely read her poems out loud badly, underlining the fact that they were meant to be read privately and silently. But we shouldn't take this to mean that poets of this time ignored the sound of words. Consider T.S. Eliot's famous description of ghostly figures crossing London Bridge, a hybrid of the dead and people going to work in their offices. 
Notice the range of open vowel sounds he manages to, uh, to press into three lines. Under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many, I had not thought death had undone so many. You might argue that this has more to do with the sound of the King James Bible than song, although we'd have to consider to what extent the Bible also borrows from the oral tradition. This is a vast subject and vastly interesting, and I've barely touched on it here. If you're a teacher, try taking a selection of short poems and song lyrics and ask students to identify which are which. This should produce some interesting discussions and help identify what expectations we bring to the two. Otherwise, next time you hear a song, think about the words. Would they work as a poem? In the same music class, we came across a type of musical instrument designed to play a single continuous note, the kind used to substitute a voice in some types of chant. It's called a hurdy-gurdy. There's a song by Donovan, England's bargain basement Dylan in the 1960s, called Hurdy-Gurdy Man. Uh, the Hurdy-Gurdy Man sings, and I'm quoting from the song, Histories of ages past, unenlightened shadows cast down through all eternity, the crying of humanity. Interesting song, actually. Um, this is a vision in a dream, a nod perhaps from the 1960s to the Romantics. But what interests me here isn't the song, but the term hurdy-gurdy. A couple of people in our class said this reminded them of other expressions. Hoity-toity, meaning to be rather superior or fussy. And hanky-panky, usually meaning sexual dalliance, but also possibly meaning underhand behaviour. These kinds of words are clearly a form of lexical creativity. I recently heard an example in Spanish. I have some little points drawn on my skin to help nurses locate an area that requires treatment. The nurse recently, seeing how minutely they've been drawn, commented, son mini winnies. Um, there's a how and a why here. The how is repeating a word, a goody goody, or adding another one that sounds very similar, mini winnie. This process may be referred to as reduplication, I mean, kind of grammatically, um, when, the, when the second word is a rhyme, rather than a repetition when it's um, a rhyming compound or what we could, could be termed a reduplicative. Now, mini-winnie is not a recognised expression in Spanish or English. The nurse was being creative with language. But why? In this case, I suspect it's a linguistic softening device. She's basically saying, they are small, but that's not a problem, just an observation. However, goody-goody sounds a critical note. The repetition acts to stress our disapproval and adds a note of childishness. Helter-skelter is more descriptive in effect, suggesting speed and movement. So the why you know, touches on a number of different purposes, and I'll go into this in a little bit more detail here with some examples. First of all, just note that these expressions, um, you know, we're using this rather unwieldy 
um, you know, term reduplicative, but they're, they're different from, say, A and B expressions like where and tear, simply because these are, this is using an and to, to join the two adjectives or nouns, or, for example, hustle and bustle. And um, they're not combinations like flimflam or knickknacks or flip-flops or pill-popper. Um, these combine very nicely and use elements of rhyme, but they're neither repetitions nor full rhymes. Some of the expressions I'm thinking about are, are actually used as short exclamations or expressions, like okie-dokie, so okay, or that was easy-peasy. Again, a touch of childishness comes into the term there. Or it was super-duper, or the expression wakey-wakey, rise and shine, uh, to tell someone to get up. So these are often used as kind of short expressions. Uh, several, like goody-goody, are nouns for people, and they're usually critical. For example, a culture vulture, someone who's really too keen on music, art, painting, etc. Or an eager beaver, someone who works really much too hard. Adjective forms can also be critical. An arty-farty film, you know, a film that's just too artistic or pretentious. A touchy-feely way of teaching, where there's too much emphasis on empathy and emotion. But there are also terms that are more neutral. For example, topsy-turvy is just disorganised. And hurly-burly is just a lot of activity. Some other examples are boogie-woogie, as a type of music, and the expression to do something willy-nilly, which means with determination to complete a task or objective. I'm sure there are more I haven't mentioned, so please let me know if you think of any others. Well, as one of my favourite BBC broadcasters used to say at the end of his show, if you have been, thanks for listening.